Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrea McKelly, who is a neuroscientist from the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College in London. He joined me to talk about the effect of nature on human mental health and well-being. And if that topic sounds familiar, it may be because we've discussed it in the past on the show. But Dr. McKelly's research takes a slightly different angle, using an app to take real-time measurements. And that provides some insights that aren't always available using traditional research techniques. I'll let him explain all that, though, so let's go straight to it. Dr. McKelly, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before we get into the specific findings that you describe in your article, I was hoping you could give us just a little bit of a lay of the land. Um, We're talking about human mental health and well-being in the urban environment. And so what challenges does the urban environment present for people uh, and their well-being? Yes, this is a very topical um, question because, as we know, the number of people moving from rural to urban environments is increasing, um, has been increasing for decades now and it's estimated to increase further. Um, So what we do know at present is that there is an association between living in an urban environment and mental health issues. We know that if you live in a a city, uh, you're two to three more times more likely to develop psychosis, depression, and various other mental health issues. So this is well established. But what we don't know is why this is happening. What are the mechanisms that lead someone who lives in a city to become more vulnerable uh, to mental health issues? So the the aim of of my team's research, but also many other research groups, is to try and understand the pathways, try and understand the mechanisms that link uh, the individual to who lives in an in urban environment to mental health problems. And this is what we don't know at the moment. This is what we are trying to understand. Right. And that's a topic that has been discussed and investigated before. Uh, but those traditional approaches have had some challenges. And there are some important ways in which your research is different. And you take a different approach to that. So I hope you could tell us a little bit about, you know, the way that you approach this research and how that might differ from some of the approaches taken in the past. Yes, it is, it is a very difficult topic to understand because there are so many factors related to the built environment, factors related to the social environment, and then, of course, individual factors all interacting with each other. So the vast majority of research in this area use the cross-sectional design where, for example, people who live close to parks were compared against people who live further from from parks. So the approach we are using in this study is quite different. We we have developed a smartphone app called Urban Mind that monitors people, uh, particularly monitors their mental well-being um, and also their surrounding environment as they go about their daily life. Uh, And in practice, people who download this app on their phone hear a prompt at random times, and when they hear this prompt, they have to answer questions about how they feel and what they can see. For example, can can they hear birds? Can they hear traffic noise? Can they see trees? And then, of course, we acquire 
um, geotagging information as well, so we know exactly where they are when they complete an assessment. And the great advantage of um, using this approach is that we can, uh, we can acquire multiple uh, assessments, we can complete multiple assessments throughout the day, throughout the week, even throughout a month. As people go about their daily life in real time, that means we can gain data that are ecologically perhaps more meaningful than the kind of data that um, we, we, we can acquire a posteriori. And before we get into the results, can you tell us a little bit about the app itself? You know, I know that it was formed as a part of a collaboration. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, for me, as an academic, uh, it was quite unusual to work with non-academics. But at the same time, that was a really interesting uh, and rewarding experience. So I developed the Urban Mind app and the wider project together with an action-based uh, researcher who is also an artist uh, called Michael Smite, uh, who is director of Nomad Projects, and also with two landscape architects, uh, Joe Gibbons and Neil Davidson. And that was really interesting because uh, I'm a, a neuroscientist and a clinician. Uh, Michael is a, an artist, and Joe and Neil are landscape architects. So we all brought very different perspectives. Uh, but at the same time, we managed to develop a shared la language and uh, we found that many of the things that are urgent to, to me were also urgent to them, but from a different perspective. And, and therefore, we, we managed to really um, develop a, a truly cross-disciplinary uh, project together, uh, which uh, I think was quite an enriching experience for all of us. That's great. And let's chat now a little bit about the results that the app provides. So this is giving you, in a sense, much more granular data with much more information, you know, sort of on, the, on a momentary basis than you'd have in these sort of traditional studies. That's correct. And what it also gives us is uh, insight into how the surrounding environment interacts with the behavior, lifestyle of the individual. So, for example, you might have um, different people in the same environment, but they might re react differently depending on their background, depending on how they process this environment. And using smartphone, te smartphone technologies like the, the tool that we have developed, we can monitor both the individual and the environment, and, and therefore we can gain better understanding of the interaction between the two. Okay, and I hope to get a little bit more into uh, the specific workings of the app and the findings that you had uh, in a moment. But but first, I wanted to uh, just ask a question about you know recruitment and uh, dissemination of the app. So you know, how did this work? Were people able to download this from the usual Play Store in those types of spots, or or was there another way that people found out about the app? So we we developed the app and we placed it on on Google Play and the Apple Store, uh, and we invited. 50 participants to download it and, uh, and use it for a period of two weeks. And what we found was really interesting. Within a period of a month, we have had many, many more participants than we needed that, who had downloaded the app and used it across the world. We had users in, in South Korea, in, in Iran, obviously in uh, Anglo-Saxon countries. And uh, it was kind of interesting to learn how some kind of spillage happened 
And on the website, we said we were interested in people from London. Um, this was going to be a study focused in London, but um, that didn't matter. People still use the app. And uh, this is something that we have learned, and we will then take forward to the next phase of the research. Okay, so you essentially the app was publicly available. You invited a certain number of people, and then some others just found it on their own, either through referrals through those who were already participants, or they just found it by searching. That's correct. Uh, partly via word of mouth. We had a social media presence, and that also helped recruit. Uh, we basically learned that uh, smartphones can be a great tool to to uh, acquire this kind of data because people carry them all the time. They're happy to use them. And, uh, and therefore, it's a very effective way of acquiring a large amount of data very quickly. Okay. And so you mentioned earlier, um, you know, I want to get in a little bit about the way that the app works and the way that people interact with it. You mentioned that it prompts people several times a day to answer some questions. Can you tell us a little bit about those questions and, you know, what was measured by the app uh, when people were using it? Yeah. So when the, when people first download the app, there is what we call a baseline questionnaire, uh, which is about the individual, uh, their lifestyle, their personality, uh, their socioeconomic status, uh, all sorts of factors that we think might influence that response to the environment. And once people have completed this baseline questionnaire, uh, then from the following day, they, they receive prompts uh, at random time and, and they have to, co- to answer a different set of questions. And this, some of these questions are about how they feel, uh, about their mental well-being, and some of these questions are about their surrounding environment, things they can see, things they can hear. So the idea is to try and link the two. There are also some questions about what they're doing at the time of an assessment, um, and that gives us insight into their behavior. And how many times are they prompted daily? Uh, in the first stage of the research, we prompted them seven times per day. And I have to put my hand up and say, that was too many. <laughs> it's one of the many things we've learned. Uh, it was um, just a little too much for the, for some participants, not for everyone. So we we have now revised the app. We have a new version, uh, which we are going to launch in the next few weeks. And that will only be three times, but for a longer period. So people will be using it for two weeks instead of one. But we'll only have three assessments per day rather than seven yeah, and what was compliance like? You know, would people on average answer most of the prompts or uh, were you having a relatively high percentage of them that were disregarded? It was mixed. I would say uh, a lot of people really enjoyed using the app because it was very much icon, icon-based. icon uh, So after using the app once or twice, people would just see the icon, for example, an image of a bird. They would know what the question is without having to read it. So that could be quite enjoyable for some participants. There was also a social uh, media element where participants were encouraged to take photos of the ground or the soil, where the, the floor where they, they were standing at the time. They were encouraged to, to take an eight-second audio recording of their environment. And some participants, again, really enjoyed this interactive aspect. But then, of course, we also had participants who weren't compliant. So I would say I would say maybe 
50-60% of the participants would, um, would complete about two-thirds of the assessments and then the remaining 40-50% would be variable but would be sometimes very few ass- assessments. That's interesting. It still gives you quite a bit of data. And I would be remiss at this point not to mention also that one of those photographs appears on the cover of the issue in which your article appears. Um, it's a it's a great picture of some swans um, swimming around a, a sort of an urban trapping. I think there's a shopping cart on the photograph as well. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you to whoever took that picture. So a question, I'm, I'm wondering now about the results. What did you find? You know, what were the correlations like between exposure to natural elements in the built environment and well-being? We found that people who were exposed to um, natural features within their uh, surrounding environment, so things like trees, hearing birds, um, seeing water, they would show an increase in their mental well-being that was evident for hours. In fact, it was still evident almost seven and a half hours uh, after uh, the exposure had taken place. So it wasn't just a simultaneous effect, but it was uh, something that had uh, some kind of time-lasting aspect. And uh, what we also found, which I think is quite intriguing, is quite interesting, is the fact that the extent of the effect wasn't the same in everyone. Uh, there There were some people who had scored higher on on a test of impulsivity. Uh, impulsivity is interesting for us because it's a it's a variable that uh, it's a trait that gives us information about potential risk for mental health issues in the future. So those people who scored higher on on this impulsivity test, they showed the greatest effects of nature. In other words, the increase in mental well-being was more pronounced in these people. And what this suggests is that um, although nature is generally uh, beneficial in terms of people's mental well-being, the beneficial effect is not the same in every individual. Uh, you, you have people with specific characteristics, for example, people with higher risk of mental health issues who might benefit even more than, than the rest of the population, which I think is really interesting from the point of view of a clinician. And it kind of raises all sorts of um, questions and pot- potential opportunities in, for how nature is used in the context of mental health. Okay, so that would seem like good news. Those who are displaying traits that would indicate that they may be at most risk of mental health problems are also those who are most affected by the exposure to natural features. That's correct. It is good news, especially because... In the literature, we have so many articles showing an association between urban living and mental health issues. And uh, often people think about cities as places that make one sick. In fact, what our research shows is that uh, building cities that have that provide enough green and blue infrastructure, that uh, provide with environments uh, where people can experience nature, can be a positive thing with with measurable uh, implications for people's mental well-being and health, and uh, and therefore cities can can be places that um, potentially are beneficial to mental well-being. 
um, which is exactly, as you say, good news. It is something that needs to be taken into account when it comes to policy making, uh, urban planning, and perhaps even when it comes to developing scalable health interventions. Okay, so it seems like you know one of the things here is that the implications from this research can be extended far beyond the traditional you know mental health interventions in the clinical perspective. This seems to call for a broader view. Absolutely, what this research is telling us is that um, supporting mental health is not something that is specific a specific remit of of the clinician, but is is something that needs to be taken into account across all areas of public life. So things like housing, transportation, urban planning and design, education, all these are broad areas which all somehow impact on uh, people's mental health, either directly or indirectly. So th- this is well illustrated by, by our findings where the, there is a potential link between the way uh, cities are planned and built, and then the mental health that will be experienced by individuals living in these environments. So I'm wondering now what's next for your research? You know, is this a situation in which we're going to see another version of the Urban Mind app? Yes. After the first stage of the research, we have developed a new version of the app, which which will be available for download and use uh, from March 2018. And this new version will be um, an extension of the original version. We think it's it's even better than the first version. One of the things we have learned from from the original stage of the research is that it's very hard to segregate uh, the built environment from the social environment. So, for example, our original app very much focused on the built environment. But how the built environment affects mental well-being something that will inevitably depend on social aspects as well. For example, someone may be in a park, uh, if they don't feel safe, if they feel someone might attack them anytime, that's not necessarily good for their mental well-being. In fact, it can be quite uh, detrimental. Whereas someone in a park who feels safe will have a, will, will have a very different experience in terms of their mental well-being. So this is just an example to to illustrate how one needs to consider the builds as well as the social uh, features of the urban environment. And this is what we are going to do uh, with this new version of the app, which will also be more interactive. Uh, it, It should be even more enjoyable to use. And we hope many, many people across the world will, uh, uh, will use it. In fact, we are also translating it into Chinese and Portuguese, so we will be able to to compare data coming from different cultures. Well, that, that's very exciting research that we'll look forward to. Dr. McKelly, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.